Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad. With Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab an extra latte. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Miles, thank you for being here, man. I really appreciate you taking your time out of your day to come talk to me a little bit, and uh, we'll see where this conversation goes. But uh, before we dive in, uh, why don't you just, you know, like I said, I just told you, I don't really like doing introductions. So why don't you uh, give the listeners a little snippet of yourself and all that good stuff, you know? And we'll get- all right. Well, firstly, have, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, my name is Miles Wakem. I'm a, an Australian expat who moved to the United States in 1989. So that would explain my somewhat unusual accent. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I live in Arizona. I've lived in the United States on and off for 30 years, but um, I guess my claim to fame is that I'm one of those guys that never finished high school and I'm a multimillionaire. So that kind of quirks up a lot of questions for people as to how I did it. Uh, but it's really probably less relevant about that, but more towards what I discovered in my life. I'm 57 years old now. Uh, I've, you know, had marriages, divorces. I've raised a, a young young daughter who a uh, young daughter is no longer young. Um, and now I, my wife and I are on to weirder and other weird adventures. We just bought a bullfighting ring in Mexico and we've, destroying it and turning it into a uh, a luxury property in central Mexico and sort of transitioning our lives down there. So, yeah, I'm kind of like one of those oddballs. I don't really follow social mantras very well. I've never been a team player, should you say, and um, yet it's always served me very well. Yeah, I got a couple of questions for everything you just said there. But well, you just said that you're an expat. I'm an yeah, expatriate from Australia. I, I left Australia. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I was like, I never heard that before. But so, uh, so yeah, all right. So you came into America in '89. Yes, I did. Yeah. So, uh, what brought you over here from Australia? I met a girl. I was on vacation in Hawaii, and I guess at the age of 24 or 25, that's what you do. And uh, <laughs> you know, I just ended up finding myself in Los Angeles as a fish out of water, had no idea what I was getting myself into. I moved from a a very quiet, very conservative country to Hollywood. And that was (laughs) kind of unusual. Um, I found myself in a place where I got married somewhat, I, I wouldn't say it was unexpectedly, but it was due to the way immigration laws worked. I could not maintain a relationship with her uh, across the other side of the equator very easily. And I couldn't stay in the United States very, very easily either. And I ended up going to Las Vegas and got married. What do you do? Did you do one of the, uh, 
you go to a random chapel in Las Vegas and do the whole like like Elvis Presley marries you or something. Well, we didn't. You didn't actually have to do that in Vegas. All you could do is turn up to the courthouse and sign some papers and, oh. and you know swear in front of a judge that you married, and that was it. They gave you the certificate and off you went. So that was you were 24, 25 years old at the time. I was. I was a foolish young kid from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I know how it goes. Yeah. It's weird how that works because when you end up in California as an immigrant like that, you find yourself in the immigration system unexpectedly, not really wanting to be. And then what happens is you you end up um, you can't work for six months, or at least that's how long it sort of felt like it took for me. You, you start filing papers to say, Hey, I'm married. And can I, can I stay here, please? And they come back and they go, well, you can stay, but it's going to take us, the government, you know, six months to process this paper and that paper. And and we're, we're overloaded and so on. And so, you know, you can't work. So I, I, you know, I'm a software engineer by trade and, I didn't have my computers. I didn't have anything like that, but I was also a musician. I was raised as a, as a musician from a very young age. And uh, I was quite, uh, I wouldn't say accomplished, but I was a, a experienced guitarist. Okay. When you're in Hollywood in 1989 as an experienced guitarist and you can't work, you do what most people do. My wife ended up having a job, so she went off to work during the day. And what did I do? I wandered down, you know, Ventura Boulevard or Sunset Boulevard or whatever, and I went into all the guitar stores and hung out in guitar centers and played, you know, guitars until I annoyed the sales reps and they told me, get out, kid, you know. And But while you're doing it, you're looking up at the notice boards and back in those days, bands who needed musicians would put, you know, these like, you know, musician wanted notices on these pinup boards. So I'd, uh, I'd call a few of them up. And next thing I know, I was in this new startup band that, uh, ended up doing reasonably well in the kind of underground Hollywood scene and playing up and down all the clubs in Sunset Boulevard and meeting all these record executive people and dealing with the recording industry. And, uh, that was amazing. I mean, I had so many bizarre experiences playing in clubs that became, you know, quite famous meeting people who, you know, I never expected to meet and, and doing lunches with the, you know, executives from Capitol records. And, mm-hmm. and, and then my band broke up a few years after we started and I ended up maintaining the relationships with all those people. And then I ended up taking my technical skills and my knowledge of the music industry and I ended up on the other side of the glass in the recording studio as an engineer and producer. And then I started producing and engineering bands and acts in the nineties. And it was wonderful. I mean, I, you know, I can't say anything, but I had great experiences back then. Um, and then one day I got a phone call that my mother had had a car accident in Australia and I had to go home. So, uh, I left home, went to see her and she was in pretty bad repair. And I, I realized it, it was my duty to go back to Australia and look after her. So I said to my wife, you want to, you want to come back to Australia with me? And she's like, sure. So we sold the house, packed up everything, got a big container ship, shipped everything back. And, and it was kind of sad because I had this burgeoning career moving ahead in the music business and I had to cut it all short. 
but you got to do what's right for your family. And, and I did that. And then, uh, I managed to settle back in okay to Australia, although I had my challenges with it, but my wife didn't. And in the end, she decided that divorce was inevitable. So she left. Uh, I ended up there and uh, by myself and kind of in a pretty depressed, horrible, dark place. Mm. And some friends of mine said to me, well, you know, it was coming up to a holiday season like Christmas. And uh, they were saying, look, we don't want you sitting around all by yourself, you know, over the holidays. Um, why don't you come with us on a trip to Queensland, which is on the other side of the country. It's a couple of day drive. Uh, I said, sure, why not? So I got in the car. We went there. We we had New Year's Eve there. We were coming back. And on the way back, in the middle of the outback, we had a massive car accident. Um, My friend's girlfriend, who was sitting in front of me in the car, she was killed. Uh, It was horrendous. And I was in a coma for about six days. Uh, I got out. I got airlifted back to my hometown. Um, There was about half of me working and half of me not. And they gradually sort of put me back together again, kind of piecemeal. And then I realized the government weren't going to pay for the whole thing because there was some crazy lawsuit involved that my buddy who was driving the car got into. And next thing you know, I lost everything. I lost my, I'd lost my, my, my um, marriage, obviously. I lost all my money because I had to pay for lawyers to pay for the whole, the whole, you know, the hospitalization and the rehabilitation work. And, uh, that was it. And so I went, you know, I, I was kind of, it was funny. I'd, I'd gone, felt like I was a zero when I left Australia, I became a hero when I was in California, I went back to Australia, I was a zero. And, you know, it was like, this is really bad. And it, it, you kind of look at it and go, can it get any worse? <laughs> Can it really get any worse? And I realized, you know what? I don't have control of what goes on about me, but I do have control of how I react, how I react to it. Yeah. And the one thing I can do is I can get myself back on my feet and I can try to recover and get myself, you know, maybe one of these days I can get back to where I was and I chose that path. And by, I, I ended up a couple of years later, I got remarried. And then I had an opportunity to go back to California in 1999 with the dot-com boom that was going on. And I went back there and uh, within, I guess, probably about three or four years, I'd made millions of dollars in real estate. <laughs> they didn't hang on to that for very long because by the time 2008 came about, I kind of lost most of it. Oh, God. Uh, was that because uh, of the recession? Yeah. Yeah. But But what was weird is I also had property in Australia as well. So... I could sell property in Australia and take the money to fund the the downside of property in the US. And I still had money left over. So with that money left over, I said, you know, go big or go home. I ended up buying up everybody else's foreclosures for pennies on the dollar and then uh, rode it out for a couple of years until everything sort of reset itself. And I guess 10 years later, they were all worth 11 times what I paid for them. Yeah. Well, isn't uh, that kind of the rule is that you want to buy when nobody else is wanting to buy and, yeah. yeah, it's funny. You know, you know, it's a. As much as they don't tell you the story, is you, you know, you watch CNBC or Bloomberg or in these business things, everyone wants to be this guy, high testosterone infused, cocaine addict, Wall Street broker type, right? And I, I don't think they understand the human mind very well because it might look good on a spreadsheet, and you might be buying this stock or that stock and acting like you're a big shot, and you know, got all this money, but. Um, 
when it comes down to it, it takes courage to go into the fiery building that is a you know a recession and buy everything in sight. Thanks, Paul. It's like you said. Yeah, and most people would never do that. It's the polar opposite of what most people do. And I think I kind of put the pieces together over time that if I kept doing the polar opposite of what everybody else was doing, mm-hmm. I made a lot of money. I actually did really, really well. Mm-hmm. When I came to the United States, I did the polar opposite of what all of my cohorts in Australia did. They just wanted to go to college and get a, a boring job working at the government or whatever, and, and that was going to be their lives. I'm like, to hell with that. I'm going to the other side of the planet into the great unknown, and it worked out great. Yeah. And then I found myself doing it again and it worked out great. And then I found myself, you know, in this topsy-turvy world of, of uh, the GFC, the economic collapse, and I went into that fiery building and it came out great. And it was like every single time I did what everyone told me not to do, it worked out great. <laughs> so that's why I do what I do. And and it's worked out incredibly well. Um well, and so, yeah, that's kind of the weird story. That's one of the keys to success that, you know, I've kind of learned from, you know, listening to people, I guess, yourself and some, you know, books I've read of people and how they've gotten successful is that, you know, most people do become successful because they're willing to take a certain risk that other people are not. And then just like for yourself that you took a risk and you're just betting on yourself and betting on the market that, you know, obviously nobody wants you know, said thing, real estate or whatever you want to say. And then all of a sudden the market comes back and then boom. Just like you said, and that's one of the things. Just take, just don't be afraid to take risk. Correct. Yeah, and I tell you something. It was really weird for me. Um, I said before about when I had the car accident, I was coming out and I was in a pretty bad spot. And I said that the only thing that I can control is my reaction to this. Yeah. There was some bonus that came out of that, which nobody ever explained to me, and I didn't realize until many years later. If you've been through a situation in your life that was that adverse, that catastrophic. And look, that was my example of it. There are plenty of friends of mine that I know who served in the military and they got blown up by an IED or they got shot at, or they, you know, horrible stories of, of challenges that they are dealing with. And I'm not talking about this from a generalized macro political, I'm saying the human being, the individual who's faced in that situation. And they come back and they feel like nobody understands them and nobody can understand what they've been through and everything. I don't, I haven't been through that. So I cannot say I understand it. What I can say is I empathize with it because what, here's some hope that comes out of that. If you've survived something like that, anything in your future is going to be a piece of cake. Mm-hmm. And, and that was exactly how it worked out for me. After I went through my fiery ordeal, I came out the other end of it saying, "If what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think from that, it's not so much that, it's more like, oh, crap, if I can get through that, I can get through anything. And all of a sudden, courage becomes a part of you and then you do embrace risk in a much more pragmatic and a much more calculated way, but you don't fear it. And what most people have in their lives, that their lives don't amount. Well, I I don't want to, this is not, I'm not trying to say this in a negative sense, but a lot of people will say, well, you know, my life doesn't amount to much. I just have this job and I just do this thing. No, your life amounts to everything. It's, It's all you've got. The thing is you're not willing to, 
step away from that day to day, the distractions we all deal with and look at it and go, God gave me this gift and I'm just squandering it, boring the crap out of myself and doing the bleeding minimum because I don't want to take on risk because I can't afford to put my family through this or I can't afford to put this, you know, no, <laughs> no, that doesn't make the world a more interesting place. Go out there and do what the hell you have to do and fulfill your passion because you get one shot at it. Exactly. You know, just like what you just said that, you know, I'm, I don't know how much you know about me, but I'm one of those CrossFit guys. And like, I love putting myself through a tough workout. And just like what you just said that, oh, if I can get myself through this workout, you know, and just wreck my body to almost 100%, you know, I don't know what you say, capacity or whatever, but like when you do things outside of there, it's like, Hey, this isn't that bad. You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic, you know, uh, your order gets wrong at the restaurant. Okay. It's not a big deal. I can get through this. Or then when you start wanting to take bigger risk, uh, you learn that, Oh, I can do this risk. And there's probably a high chance that I'll come out of this pretty successful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it comes, it comes down to you too. I mean, it's how you act and how you've learned from experiences and so on, but you're right. I mean, I, I do feel it's funny, you know, I it, 30 years living in the United States and I still feel a bit like an immigrant, but I have spent so much time outside of the U S I spend probably half of my year now traveling. And, uh, because we're doing a lot of work and development in Mexico, I spend a lot of time in Mexico meeting people from other parts of the world that I'd never expect to meet. And I was, uh, at a event a few weeks ago where I sat down with a guy who was from Cuba and uh, he had escaped Cuba. He was in Mexico and we were having, it was one of these mezcal events and we were having some drinks and just talking. And I said, tell me about what you've been through. Yeah. And when I heard the stories of what this poor guy had been through, it made my stories look pathetic. I mean, the, the stuff that he had dealt with every single day of his life Mm-hmm. that he had escaped. And I, I look at it and go, yeah, you know, they got my order wrong at the McDonald's. Big deal. <laughs> this poor schmuck nearly got killed, you know, every single week because he protested, you know, this or that, or he, you know, it's like, no, really. I mean, perspective is, it, you've got to, I think having a worldview really helps, right? Understanding what other people in other cultures live like and and how, what challenges they as human beings deal with when they get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really important that we do that. That doesn't mean that we have to give up who we are, but it means that we have to at least be aware, like be widened in our, in our thinking and not be so sort of myopic on just what I have to do this day. You know, boss has got me on this project. I've got a deadline. I've got to meet it. Yeah. That might be good for you, but be a little more, macro a little more wider in your views and all of a sudden you might see things very differently it may make you behave differently and you may actually get a better result out of it yeah you know i'm glad you just said that because you know i borrowed this philosophy from somebody and it was like don't always be married to your ideas and it was always like hey you know talk to people you know learn new things don't be afraid to try to grow yourself and you know just because you think one thing doesn't mean it's exactly right. I'm not saying it's going to be wrong either, but, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, like you just said, widen your, you know, your horizons or however you want to say it. And just like even talking with you right now, it's just like, you might teach me something tonight that I had something that in my mind that I was like, mm, this is the way it is. No, and if or buts about it, but mm-hmm. you know, you got to learn, you got to be able to learn. I mean, and just grow. And I mean, is that what, 
basically you taught yourself, you know, coming over here, it sounds like, and you know, you have a great underdog story, you know, you hit rock bottom and you learn and became you're on top of your game right now. I mean, is that kind of what your philosophy was too, is just keep growing. Uh, things are not, things are always not as bad as they seem, just like you were saying with the guy that you were talking to a few weeks ago, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's very hard to take a life and to convert it into a hour long conversation. Of course. I mean, everything is a learning experience and, I've I've learned the art of leverage and timing, and I think that's probably been the biggest thing that's always served me well. And that just means that with every little thing that I achieve successfully, I try to build upon it, mm-hmm. uh, stand on the shoulder of what I've done before me, and it tends to be, get me higher all the time. And and I I tend to find that I like that approach. And every single day is just chipping away at getting a little bit higher. Um, I always, uh, do you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Have you ever I know, I've heard of it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I haven't studied you, it, but I know, I've heard, I know what you're talking about. For, you, for your listeners that may not be aware of it, um, Albert Maslow was a psychologist who was quite famous in the late 1960s by defining uh, a, a kind of a path, a human path towards what he would call uh, self-actualization Um a lot of people in the world of it, certainly in religions, they might call these things like Nirvana, like a quest to achieve some ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And, and he always felt that the human psyche wanted to quest towards self-actualization and everybody would define that differently, but there were some common layers that one would go through as you, you went up in life. And it starts off at what they call the physiological layer, uh, and that would be the things that we need for our survival. For the most part, food, shelter, clothing, that sort of stuff. Sure. The idea is once you can achieve those things, you can leverage upon them upward. But if you never quite get out of that quagmire of finding food, shelter, and clothing, you're always seeking it out, you can never advance beyond it towards self-actualization. So a lot of people have this fatal mistake that they believe that, let's say they go to college, they graduate, and they get their first job and their first job pays them to go and get their own apartment. And they learn how to go to the supermarket on their own and feed themselves. And, and they, they learn these men buy clothes, right? The basics, the, the physiological basics, and they screw that up. And I'm not saying they do it intentionally, but what happens is that they get too big an apartment or they buy the wrong sort of food or they, you know, and then they never get out of this, this spiral of trying to fix that level. Mm-hmm. But most people who can get past that, they move up to the next layer, which may be things like industrial stuff, like telecommunications, medical insurance, um, those sort of things that are utilitarian to us. And once you get a good phone and you've, you're covered, so you're not going to die if somebody hits you on the road in a car or whatever, then you can go beyond that. And you eventually, you know, and that might be, some more luxury commodities in your life or so, you know, those sorts of things. And eventually you get to a point where you're towards the top of this pyramid. And that's when you start giving back. Um, a lot of very wealthy people do it by uh, philanthropy. Uh, they, you know, they, they donate money, they're involved in charities and whatever. And if they're doing it for decent reasons, I mean, that's a good thing. A lot of people, I guess I'm at that point now where I try to teach people things that about, their journey when they were down at the bottom end of that pyramid trying to claw up. I'm like throwing a rope down, trying to bring them up. But I realize that you have to go through these layers in a sort of a linear form and you have to be, 
willing and patient that things take time and that you're not going to be that Instagram hero when you're 22 and keep it very long. Yeah. Right. Um, And I, I guess that Albert Maslow kind of codified that in psychology. And I use that as a kind of a map for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a map that is two dimensional. It's a map that has time is the biggest player in it because as you get older, you get up the chain bit by bit, you chip away, you keep working, you may fall down, you pick yourself back up, you keep going back up the pyramid because you know at the top, that's where your enlightenment is. That's where you want to be. Um, if we as humans follow that pat that pattern, that path, we're actually very happy because yep. we've always got something we get up in the morning to do that drives us forward. We're always battling um, entropy. We all turn to dust eventually, second law of thermodynamics. And, and as a result, everything in our world does that. We are happiest as people when we're battling with entropy to maintain ourselves so we don't turn to dust a la CrossFit or that we're creating new things that do not yet turn to dust because they're brand new. That is, we're making, when we're artists, we paint something or musicians creating songs or Hollywood producers making movies or whatever it might be. We, we are battling entropy because we all know at some point in our life we're all going to turn to dust. Sure. And and if we can just have a life of purpose, a life of forward momentum towards our self-actualization, man, we, we, we are so powerful and so wealthy. And that to me is the ultimate goal. You know, I, I agree hundred percent with you right there, but do you think that, you know, in talking about your hierarchy of needs that, you know, people want to skip, you know, the surviving basics just because there might be a cultural narrative in this country or even in the world that, in order to be successful, you have to wear a Rolex or, you know, you have to drive a Rolls Royce and that's your keys to success, but it's more of like, it's just a, a status figure, I guess, you know, does that kind of make sense what I'm trying to say? And that's the reason they just skip steps and this, they go into debt for a $75,000 watch. Like, Oh, I'm successful. You know, I'm mm-hmm. big time. Yeah. That, that's a, um, that's an external projection to somebody else of your success. Because it's so much easier to do that than it is to look inward at yourself. The scariest thing that we humans have to do is to look at ourselves in the mirror. No one wants to do that. Interesting. Everyone's willing to look at everybody else and therefore their definition of how Jay-Z looks or how Elon Musk looks or or whoever may define to them uh, an aspiration of who they want to be but they never look at themselves in the mirror. And the problem is that every single day they get up in the morning, they get up with themselves. They don't get up with Elon Musk and Jay-Z and and all those people. And these sort of, um, I guess you would call them like external trappings that we fall into uh, to make somebody else that we don't know or we don't probably care about think that we're good, bad, or indifferent. Um, is a waste of time and energy for most people. I think you'll probably find that most extremely successful people who are not uh, victims of their own um, celebrity are very much not the sort of person you would expect them to be. You look at someone like Warren Buffett. I mean, the guy for years drove around in an old $2,000 pickup truck, and yet he was the richest man in the world at the time because 
to him, it was more about how he was inward that defined his actions, his decisions and his strategies. And he could care less about what somebody in the outside thought of him, only that he was a nice guy and he didn't do anything bad to other people. Do you, is that the problem with social media now that we're thinking about what other people think of us rather than what we really are? Like you just say, we don't want to look ourselves in the mirror. So we project our highlights, I guess, on Instagram and Facebook and say, Oh, I'm actually living this luxury lifestyle, but internally we're really not. So it's just that you just got to make sure everybody thinks that right. In order to be, get where you're going. Is that the problem with social media today? Well, somewhat we're, we're, we have this fictitious, um, I mean, look, with all human psychology, there is our good side, and we also have flaws. Mm-hmm. And our flaws of narcissism and greed and fear of missing out, they, they stem back to things in, that go back well beyond our lives. To, you know, our, our fear factor of success is based on things that go back prehistoric to when there might have been, when we were not the apex predator on the planet and things were out killing us everywhere and we had to look around our back all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, and we also realize that in order to, once you dominate every other species that there is and you become the apex predator on the planet, the only predator left to dominate that would be a challenge would be other people. And so we end up becoming this kind of, we dominate, that's our species, that's what our DNA tells us to do, right? And so when there's nothing left to dominate, either we're going to shoot ourselves off into the stars and hopefully find another planet that we can dominate, or we start dominating each other, which is a really bad thing. Well, well part of that whole pretense of, of being somebody who you think is all powerful or influential or success. And therefore the reality is I have all of this shield around me by way of my Lambo and my Rolex and all those stuff. These are things that you would say, don't attack me. I'm heavily armed. Now that might be, they're not armed, but psychologically we are presenting to other people that I am more powerful than you. Therefore you shall not attack me. That's a demonstration of insecurity, not a demonstration of security. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with people who, you know, just like you said, if you have that alpha mentality that you're insecure about something and you're projecting yourself on other people in a way that you want them to make you think, but you're really not that way. But does it work? Mm, could be. But I've never really felt myself that I really get along with a lot of people who have that type of mentality. Yeah. That, that always have to like be boasting about something and always tell you how good they are. And, you know, I think Muhammad Ali said, I can't remember who said, it, but I thought it was Muhammad Ali said that. You know, if you have to tell people that you're really great, then you're really not, you know? Yeah. Well, he's right. I I would go one step further and say, if you're spending all your time worried about your external appearance, it has to be that you're not spending enough time worrying about your internal appearance, how you look to yourself. And most people who have got those trappings are highly insecure on the inside and so scared to address that that it's better to be distracted away from it. Um, and I see this in business a lot. I see a lot of business people out there who are hustling all the time, str- you know, pushing, 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 working 16-hour days, chasing the dollar, chasing this. And when you realize that they have enough money, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be homeless next week. Yeah. What they're really doing is they're building up a set of distractions that stop them looking at themselves. Because when you don't have to face yourself in the mirror, you can shy away from the scariest 
part of our lives. And, and most of those people don't ever want to look at themselves in the mirror. They can talk a good game. Oh, they'll go, Oh, I did this team building thing, or I, you know, I did, uh, this, you know, epic thing, you know, this, uh, 300 race or whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you look at them individually as people, they are heavily flawed individuals that don't want to fix those problems. It's easier to fix the problem. It's cheaper. <laughs> you know, you just said that, you know, working 16 hours a day is just like that type of mentality you have to have to almost be successful or whatever. And they want people to know that. But do you think that's a false narrative just because it's like it was an entrepreneurial narrative that you have to, you know, get four hours of sleep every day in order to stay grounded and stay working in order to be successful. I mean, but there's also, I think, a case or an argument you can say that just because you are working 16, 20 hours a day, you know, how much are you actually getting done and what's your quality of work? You know, if you were to get, you know, six to eight hours of sleep, would you still get the same amount of work done in less time just because it's better quality or, you know, the quantity, I guess quality versus quantity, I guess is what I'm going with here. Which well, let, let's peel that onion back a little bit. Okay. Let's start by defining what work is. So what, what is your ultimate purpose for spending that time? What, what are you doing it for? That, that would be a, a, see if you can follow me with these questions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, Most people think it's because they want to earn money. Sure. Right. right. Bosses and employers know that's actually not the motive, the major motivation that people have for turning up to work is because of ego. It's validation, a sense of purpose, a sense of doing something and contributing to something maybe bigger than we are. Um, those things are far more powerful than money. Uh, the, the ego is stroked by what we in business would call titles. So what you'll find is you get these corporations that are very happy to give out titles to people without any salary increase because they believe that titles stroke ego. And the whole idea here is to keep you grinding away at 16 hours a day because you feel there's a sense of purpose to you. And that sense of purpose is your ego being validated by way of status, title, and who you are. But most people find that at the end of the day, the statistics tell us that 78% of people live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And 65% of people who go to college don't end up pursuing a career that was anything like their major. I agree. And that 38% of people can't afford to retire at the age of 65 and that the life expectancy of a U.S. male as of 2020 was 75.3 years, down five years from five years prior. We are not living longer. We are spending more time being distracted towards a purpose that has absolutely little or no benefit to us financially. If you look at any rich person, there's one simple rule. The rich don't have jobs. If you get that right in your mind and you click to that, you'll realize that working 16 hours a day for a boss will never make you rich. What we've got, and this is an immigrant talking, so I'm somebody from this, this is where I can put on my outside looking in cap. What we've got is a system which is based around banks and finance. Mm -hmm, we have mm -hmm. a system which at the age of 18, a kid is expected to sign a contract for six figures of debt to go to college before they're even legally in most states allowed to get a beer at a bar. Sure, I agree. Um, then they spend so much of their life paying down that college debt 
but they've got a major that they rarely ever use as their career path. Then after they get past that and they want to go into a building phase of their life, they build a family and a career and identity and, and everything. They also probably want to build a house. Yep. And when they do that, they take on a 30 year mortgage and the French translation of the word mortgage is death contract. So if you understand, yeah, this people don't understand French enough. Anyway, um, when they take on the 30 year death contract, what happens is they, they get themselves a house that they probably is bigger than they ever need. Mm -hmm. That is pressing people other than themselves who live in it. But it's something that particularly for males, for the patriarchal nature of us, that we want to, we want to be the breadwinner. We want to be the support system of the family. We want to be that, that mast on the ship that keeps everything going forward. And, and the house is an important part of that. And it is part of that physiological Maslow's need, the shelter component. The problem is that people buy houses that they can't afford. At times they don't have any money to afford even the, the down payment of, and they sell their future out. Well, a 30-year mortgage is 30 years of your future. If you if you do the numbers, let's say at the age of 18, you took on 100K of debt, you got out of college at 22, you're probably not going to pay that sucker back until about 30. Yeah. At the age of 30, you've met some girl or guy of your dreams and you want to go ahead and start a family and get married and you want to get a house and you've been working for a couple of years and some you know job that's enough to be able to get you you know, the bank lets you sign away a life on a contract. Well, let's say 30 or 32, add 30 years of that for the mortgage. And now it's 60, 62, and you know, you're going to die at 65, 75. That doesn't seem like a very good set of numbers to me. Um, what I feel is that people who fall, you only have to make one mistake on that road and it's completely game over because if you go ahead and you say, well, um, the interest rates have dropped on mortgages and I'm going to refinance my house. That's great. You're going to get a lower interest rate. Yeah. My payment's going to drop. Great. Your payment's going to drop. You're going to reset the clock of that 30 years back at the time you refinance, unless you've got a 15 year mortgage, but you're going to reset it back at 30 years. So let's say you refinance at 40 years old. Now you're going to be paying the sucker off until you're 70. And people go, well, you know, I can pay more. How many people pay more? Yeah. Honestly, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we all aspire to, but no one does. And then everyone's going, well, it doesn't really matter because it's not really a big payment. And I've got all this money in IRAs or stock options or whatever. I'm just going to keep working my 16 hours a day and I'm going to sock away all this money. And one day I'll be able to retire and maybe I can re retire early. Maybe I can find some path out of this mess. No. Your dollar is worth less every year. Inflation is killing us. And what's happening is that you are not getting in front of anything. And then you, after maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years, you look back at this and you go, what am I doing? I've just been working 16 hours a day, five, six days a week for this house that I'm now a slave to, for this death contract that I took out and my family isn't getting my attention. My boss wants my undivided attention to their work. Um, this is miserable. This is, in, this is slavery. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte. 
After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. And it is. It is. But it's self-induced slavery. It's self-induced fail. And it took me so many times in my life of doing things and making mistakes to realize what didn't work. And I'm, I'm only thankful to say that I pulled my ass out of these problems fast enough so I could get a chance to fix it. Mm-hmm. Because I luckily, I quit, I quit working 25 years ago. I haven't had a job for 25 years. I'm gratefully unemployed for 25 years. <laughs> but I've made millions and millions of dollars because um, what I realized was that, you know, all these, all these stories come down to one simple thing. And that is, it's all about understanding how the universe works. And, and, and this is, I don't want to sound all weird because it's not. No, no, when, no, no, keep going, man. You're fine. All right. When you, grow up, okay. when you grow up in Australia, you find yourself in a really unusual place. You're on a big ass Island mm-hmm. and it's on the other side of the planet and hardly anyone ever goes there. And there's only 25 million people living on this landmass. that's the size of the United States. So Imagine if you took like the population of Southern California and spread it all over the country. That's Australia. Gotcha. And it's pretty much an agricultural and mining resources country. It's, it's got, you know, we used to say in Australia, we're the lucky country because we could go out in the backyard, dig a hole and then make a million bucks. Um, it was kind of like that. There's a lot of gold, there's a lot of iron ore, uranium, there's everything there. Um, Farming is really good, particularly in areas near the coastlines. And we have like big wine districts and big wheat and barley and and so on. Um, It's a wonderful place. It's self-sufficient for the most part. But it comes with the the downside that anything on the ground could kill you at any moment, whether it's a snake, a spider, a jellyfish in the ocean, anything. And you get raised in that world and you understand that your life is got to have a lot of risk mitigation in it. Yeah. And there's no one out there who will bail you out. The buck stops at your desk. So we're very, um, kind of, yeah, we're we're pragmatic. You know, it's like, okay, all right, we need to, we need to farm, but we're going to go out there and, and, you know, worry about snakes and (laughs) and spiders and stuff. I mean, that's just how it is. So anyway, when you deal with that, the one thing you learn is respect and respect of nature. You understand that maybe in that country, you're not the apex predator and you have to learn synergy. You have to learn to get along with all of these things around you. You have no choice. You don't have those challenges in New York city. You get to get along with a lot of other things, but not, it's not going to be a snake that comes out of the, the gutter and bites you, you know, maybe a rat, but not a snake. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different risk factor. And what happens is you also understand that if you're living in a world where you're relying on mother nature to deliver its bounty to you, whether that be like farming is a good example of that. You understand seasons, you understand crops, you understand science, you understand water and weather and rainfall, you understand fire and the risk of bushfires. And you understand all of this. It's in your, it's in your blood. It's part of your playbook. Um, I grew up on the coast. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, 
by the ocean. And one thing I learned when I was a teenager was about surfing, about the water. And despite the fact that there's great whites out there that could kill you at any moment, most kids of my age took that in their stride and learned to get their surfboard out and realized that they had to go and learn how to battle with the waves. And it was not really any different than what the farmer had to do with the seasons that they were planting crops. When I was surfing out there, my, my natural uh, universe that I had to become synergistic with were, was waves. Waves have patterns. They go up, they come down, they have crests, they dump the small ones, big ones. Sometimes it's flat. Sometimes it's, you know, not flat. Um, they tend to follow patterns with the moon. There's a whole bunch of things that we just, you know, you look at this and go, oh, that sounds all real spiritual hippie-like. No, it's what a surfer does, right? Yeah, surfers, yeah. I don't care if you're in Hawaii or Portugal or Australia, this is how surfers think. And when I learned to surf and I was horrible at it initially, it took me ages to learn. I got dumped on all the time by waves and it hurt, hurt and I had surfboards hit me in the back of the head. But after a number of days of this pain and suffering, I realized that there were patterns in nature and these patterns were fairly predictable. Mm -hmm. And the one pattern which always happened was that when I could see a wave emerging on the horizon, if I was in front of it and before it came to me, I started paddling and I was prepared for it, the wave would see me not as an adversary. It would see me as something synergistic to its path. It would pick me up and it would transfer its energy to me and I would get the ride of my life. And that's how surfers think. I realized that the exact same patterns apply in so many parts of our world. The reason we're speaking today, sound resonance, is because sound cycles in waveforms very closely together in high frequency, but that's how our ears work so that I can talk to you, you can talk to me. Sure. If, if you look at power and sine waves, particularly alternating current, you see the positives and negatives. If you look at the way that the planet spins, it has a north and a south pole that must be in unison and they must work together in order for the planet to spin properly without completely destroying everything in sight. Everything is about patterns, ups and downs. If you apply that to business, it's very, very easy to see the analogy because you think about charts or stocks on Wall Street or whatever. And every time I see a chart of a stock, particularly if I see it over a period of time, maybe a number of years, I see the same waves I saw on the surfboard. Yeah. And every time I realize if I want to catch that wave, I've got to be ahead of it. I've got to be prepared for it. And I'm going to catch it when it's not cresting. I'm going to catch it when it's low. It's the old analogy, buy low, sell high, right? Yeah. But, yeah. It's, but it's universal. It's what we see all about us, but we choose not to see it. We don't, the sun comes up and sun goes down every day. The moon comes up and moon goes down. These patterns are around us in plain sight all the time. And they're also patterns that are in business. A, a couple of years back, I was having a chat with a very successful uh, CEO of a company that I knew here in Arizona and a friend, and we were just chatting and he said to me, so, so miles, what, what do you, what do you suggest I should invest in? And I was, you know, it's an honor for people to ask me that question, but I don't normally give direct financial advice, but I said to him, what do you, what's, what's going on in the, in the media right now? That's a total disaster. And he, and at the time, uh, oil was at $27 a barrel. Yeah. Cheap, okay. Cheap. And he was going, 
well, I don't know. Everything's up except oil looks really bad right now. I said, well, buy that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that's scary. It could go down. I'm like, okay. So check me if I'm wrong here. It's normally like $80 a barrel. It's at 27. You're worried about it going down. What's the chance of it going up? I think it's probably higher than it going down right now. Right. I agree. I mean, that's, that's just basic pragmatic thinking. He bought oil. And now what are we at 105 Brent crude today or something? It's 90 last time I checked, but yeah, it's probably yeah. up in the hundreds now. Well, we call that in investing, we call that a four bagger. Yeah. You got four times his investment, right? I don't typically go into buying anything unless I can go for at least a five or a 10 bagger. But I bought real estate in 2009, 2010, and I sold it for 11 times what I bought for it. But I, here's, here's the best one I did. In 2011, I bought Bitcoin when everyone said, what the hell is that? I bought a ton of it and I sold it in 2018. I made 1,800 times what I spent on that Bitcoin. Yeah. This is how you get rich. You don't get rich working 16 hours a day hustling in a job, right? You don't get rich. You get the chance to step away from that and to start seeing what is given to you in plain sight. And that is what everybody else is complaining about and running away from, run into it. Mm -hmm. That's how you get rich. I want to talk to you a little bit about Bitcoin and stuff, but I had a couple of questions while you were talking, thinking of that. Is there something wrong with the education system, you think, in maybe the world or America, just because, like you said, that we are setting up, or not we, I'm not doing it, but setting up kids that, you know, go to college, you'll get a job, you know, even get a master's degree, you'll get a better job, but you come out making, you know, who knows how much, I mean, but you know, you, you have 75 to $80,000 in debt. You know, I work in higher education and the college I went to actually, it's like probably $15,000 a year. So 15 times five, was that? 75,000 if I did it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So $75,000 and the chances in my area, not many jobs pay that where I live at. So, and then what, if you're in a 1% of this country, it's 34,000, I think, or it's 36,000. And you're in a, if you make over that, you're in a 1%. I can't remember quite something like that. The last stat I heard, but is there something, is our education system flawed? I mean, you're a living example. You said you dropped out of high school and now you just talked about making millions on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Is there something that the education system should be changing and be look, teaching people how to look for these patterns you were just talking about, or, you know, like look for stuff like, Hey, for nobody else doesn't want it, this is when you should be buying it, you know? Yeah. Um, this, uh, the, there's two sides of this. Um, the educational industry 30 years ago uh, had a lot more credibility than it has today. And I know I'll probably cop a lot of flack from people who work in academia on this, but the truth is that universities today want to sell a product. Business. Right. And and they're in league with banks because banks want to sell debt because debt equals interest and interest equals consistent income streams for them. It's their passive income stream is your interest payment. And so the the beautiful thing that the banks have got is a, a, a product which cannot be expunged by bankruptcy. Student loan debt you can't get out of by bankruptcy. So they're in a position where even if they have to wait to get their money, the longer they wait, the more they know they've got you. Um, and the universities themselves who are, I, I was driving I, here in Phoenix, I was driving past Arizona State University today uh, with a buddy of mine, we just had lunch. And um, 
the buildings, uh, you know, they're these beautiful brand new buildings growing up everywhere, cranes everywhere, building this, that, and the other. Um, why? They're supposed to educate people to be better human beings. They're not supposed to be profit-motivated institutions. And yet this is where their money goes. And it's our tax dollars and it's our kids, you know, future that's paying for these big buildings. And anytime I see, if you, okay, you look at any city in the United States or in the world for that matter, what is the, look at, look at the signs on the tallest skyscrapers in those buildings. And what do you typically see? Just big companies. Like they're banks, insurance companies. And you'll see sometimes educational institutions, sometimes media, but these are the big ones, right? If you're in Texas, you'll see like oil companies and things like that, which is understandable, but it's predominantly banks. Oh, and you'll get KPMGs and all the, you know, the, the big ex accounting firms and whatever, but you, it's all about money. And 42% of our GDP in the United States goes to financial services. So if we're not producing anything, but we're not manufacturing or producing anything we export, but 43 or 42% of our GDP is in financial services, it's all about transactional churn. And what you need is you need a lot of people who are debt enslaved who transact to churn the money, and that's how you get the big skyscraper in the middle of the city. That's how the big banks get it. And that's why Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, all these big guys, they're huge corporations. Um, too big to fail, we call use the term, because we let them get that big because we got suckered into buying products with money we didn't have on the pretense of what the glossy brochure told us that we would be at the end result of getting it. And yet the vast majority of us that walked out of that debt enslaved world as college graduates, despite the success of finishing four or six years worth of education, have nothing that prepared us for the world that we walked into the day we left college. And, and that's scary, sad, mm-hmm. and it completely corrupts our life path because we now have to pay that money back Mm-hmm. And that means that everything else got put on hold until we achieve that. And it's, I've got, look, I, I have a bunch of rental properties and I've got tenants in there that are very, very well to do people who work in very good jobs, jobs you would think were paying, you know, six figures and, and they're living in crappy two bedroom, $700 a month apartments because they can't buy a place because of their student loan debt. Yeah. All right. That's not a good place for us to be as a society. If we, you know, they could have owned the building that they're renting from me if they took the four years and the money that they would have spent to the university and put it down as a down payment on some rental real estate and were willing to wait 10 and 15 years for the other tenants to pay the thing off. And then they could have lived on the rent for the rest of their lives. That's how I do it. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take a high school graduate to tell you that, right? I'm sure. not rocket scientist. I'm just pragmatic. Um, but, but when you say, you know, they're not teaching us anything in college about that. Well, no, they're not. They should, when, what the ultimate audacity I found when my daughter went to business college at university of Arizona, she studied, uh, she did a course in what they called entrepreneurialism. Now I, yeah, they're teaching it at college huh. and, I 
it, it, I almost wanted to throw up because everything I'd done in my life, particularly in my earlier years, was what people would probably have called an entrepreneur. I, I took risks. I, I, did, I built businesses. I did all of that sort of thing. None of that was taught in college. And if I had tried to learn that in college, I would have been a dismal failure because you can't learn the art of the street hustle. You cannot learn the art of negotiation. These things happen by participation and activity, not by academia. So I, I would caution anybody. I'm not saying, it, it, look, we need people who do what I would call hard degrees. That would be medicine, architecture, law, accounting, th uh, things that are engineering, things that require that level of education that you do take into your work. But we don't need political science majors and we don't need, you know, a degree in, I don't know, studies of Elon Musk. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, if you wanted to be Elon Musk, go out there and be Elon Musk, right? You don't need to study him. Um, yeah. we, we don't need any more. We've already got him. Go and be yourself. Mm -hmm. but, but be yourself with purpose and passion. And, um, and the worst thing is don't, at the young age, and we're, when we're young, we don't know who we're going to be. We've sure, got sure. such a life ahead of us, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe go and spend some time traveling around the world like I did. Maybe backpack in Europe for a couple of years. Maybe go to Thailand. I don't know. Just do something, but let the rest of the world tell you what it wants you to solve. It, let, it, let it give you their problems so that you can solve them, and that's how you get rich. Yeah. Dude, I can't, I can't agree more, Miles. I mean, just, you know, you learn from your mistakes. You, you know, Will Smith even says that, you know, in school you get the lesson and then the test, and then you can actually try to, you know, uh, make a decent grade on it. But in life, you get the test, and then you learn the lesson from what <laughs> – I like that. Yeah, and, and I like I'm reading this book right now, and I was like, that makes total sense to me, you know. And just yeah. through life, you know, you go through all – you know, I have went through college and got my master's and all that, but just – you know, life outside of college, I feel like, has taught me more because of my life experiences and talking to people like yourself and actually, you know, Googling and learning more things and reading where I, that I want to learn and what I want to know and expanding my mind that way as to oppose that. You know, it seems like before Internet days, that's why people went to college, because that's where all the books were. And that's how you were supposed to educate yourself. But now we have the whole world it's just at our fingertips through keyboards and I guess Google or whatever search engine you use and you can learn to do anything, you know, if, but you can have a YouTube education, I guess is what you mm -hmm. So, and that's almost forgettable, I think. Yeah. A friend of mine's son, uh, I mean, I'm a software engineer by trade, so I could talk to him about this, but his, his son had some wanting, wanting to learn how to code. Yeah. And, and I said, well, um, I'll tell you what the, the most important thing you could ever learn in, in the art of technology or computer science, and that's how you can say yes to something that you have no idea how to do and that you have the skills to work the sucker out. And I'm not going to teach you how to code, but I'm going to tell you that if you tell me that you can code and you don't know how you're going to do it, that's the first step of you learning how to code. Mm -hmm. Go out there and embarrass the crap out of yourself and say that you can't do something, you can do something that you can't, but you're willing to learn. And that pressure will drive you to learn it better than anybody. 
You'll be embarrassed if you can't deliver it on time. You'll be, you know, and that's how we rise to the occasion. We have to be willing to face the, the imposter syndrome and embrace it to some degree. Because without that, we'll never, if, if, if all I know how to do is to, uh, I don't know, dig ditches and somebody says, do you want to help me build a house? And I'm like, well, I don't know how to build a house. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the wrong answer. The right, right answer is, hell yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and then I go out and I, I do what you're talking about. I get on YouTube and I'm like, right, tell me how to build a house. That's how you learn. Exactly. We're not, we should not be scared to do that. That doesn't mean that we should be dishonest with people, but the answer isn't, no, I can't do that. The answer is, I can't do that today, but watch me, watch me learn and be a valuable contributor tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Didn't, uh, uh, you know, talk about coding, didn't the government try to implement uh, some kind of program for everybody to learn how to code? Maybe, was there any Obama administration? Is this right or am I making that up? It's something along those lines. You may well be right. Um, it was something along those lines. Not, I may have butchered that, but it was something along that lines. Yeah, I I think that they missed the point. Um, yeah, that, that, that's not <laughs> that's not going to work. I mean, look, if you ever work in 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 IT departments, you'll realize that if you have a department of like fifty people, forty eight of them are phoning it in, and two of them are doing all the work. So to expect all of them to be coding is typically just going to generate the same sort of end result. The people who are passionate about what they choose as their path in life and their career will, will be those two people in the 50 that will actually get all the work done. And they're the ones who should be rewarded. And if you, if you want, if, if we live in a world of all, all, every child wins a prize, um, we are doomed. (laughs) Those participation trophies that everyone gets all the time. I agree hundred percent that it doesn't get anybody anywhere. I mean, you got to have kind of what we've been talking about learning from your mistakes and you got to have these humbling life experiences, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's just my opinion. That might be me generally speaking, but I've learned a lot just like when you and I've been talking about this whole hour, just that, you know, you go through a breakup, you know, you lose money and whatever said thing you did and, you know, you lose the, the game. I mean, it's a humbling experience and you learn from it and you learn that, okay, you know, what can I take from this? You know, and it brings you down a notch, but hopefully you bounce back, you know? Well, if, you, if you're looking inward and you understand yourself, uh, you spent some time looking inward to understand yourself, then it it's like water off a duck's back. You know, your successes and your failures are a product of your knowledge of who you are, your id. And so you just progress on to the next thing and you just do it again. And, and that seems to be like, you know, your life story almost that, you know, you're backpacking and going through life and having, you know, certain, you know, bad things that have happened and how you've learned from yourself and learned to become who you are today. You know, you learned that, oh, this didn't work oh that worked, you know, and it's, it's a great story. Like I said earlier, I love a good underdog story. Yeah. I'm just a guy. I mean, I'm nothing more than that. And like all things, I will suffer entropy and turn to dust too. So if in the process I can help somebody move their way up the Maslow's hierarchy on the happy camper. Well, before we get off here, I wanted, I did want to talk to you about Bitcoin and NFTs, you know, just because, you know, I've recently been paying more attention to NFTs, but I found out about Bitcoin. Maybe I I was too late to the party. Like I guess story of my life, but, um, but yeah, like how did you find out about Bitcoin and, and when you were able to get in on it, is it just you taking a risk when somebody mentioned it or, what and then what's your thoughts on NFTs right now? Because so, that seems to be like the new thing. Yeah. Um, 
Well, Bitcoin and NFTs are very different things. Sure. Uh, I got into Bitcoin because I it was post 2008. I had been messed over by the banks big time. And I was uh, doing some software development. And I had a guy who was working for me who was in Bangladesh. And he was a genius programmer in this particular area and a friend. And the problem was we were in this post 9-11 decade. Yeah. Every Muslim country was considered terrorists or terrorist cells or whatever. And the United States had a, a did not have a reciprocal banking relationship with Bangladesh. So he'd do all of this work and I'd email him over the specs to do and he'd do the work and he'd email me back the resulting code and we'd implement it and it was great. But when it came to paying him, I couldn't PayPal him. I couldn't Venmo him. I couldn't do any of that. I, I was like, why is it that I can email you and you can email me and it's free and it's immediate, but I can't do that with money. Right. What's the problem here, right? So uh, we ended up, I was going down to Western Union with cash, paying ridiculous amounts of money to them to send him a money gram or whatever that would take a week for him to cash. And then when eventually he cashed it, he was losing 27% of the entire money he was making in the to the trolls on the bridge, if you like, everyone trying to take the money from him. And we discovered Bitcoin about 2011 as a way that I could pay him. And uh, back in those days, prior to that, I'd been sort of playing around with the cryptography side of it. And, you know, on a spare laptop, you'd mine some Bitcoin because you could, which in retrospect seems so ridiculous. You know, we'd mine like 10 Bitcoin in a 24-hour period. (laughs) You know, today's like 400,000 bucks. Anyway, um, who saw that? I didn't see that coming. What I did do is I bought a lot of Bitcoin because I was going to pay him through Bitcoin over like six months worth of contract time. So I put a lot of money into Bitcoin. And then uh, unexpectedly, it went from $7 that I bought it for to $1,200. And I'm like, oh, I guess you could say that was luck. but in retrospect, I saw a white paper that was said Bitcoin, electronic peer-to-peer cash. And I thought, this is what I need to do. I need to pay him. Yeah. And so when I realized what was going on with this, I, and I realized that this thing was bigger than I expected it to, I went down the rabbit warren like everyone did back in those days. And we went back to reinventing what money was and understanding that and and that was an interesting adventure. And, and I guess I became one of those many annoying Bitcoin people back in those days telling everybody they should buy Bitcoin. You know, it price went up 1200 down to 200 and And everybody who all the Wall Street old school and the gold types were going, ah, that's nerd money and it's not real and you're going to lose your shirt. And I'm like, well, it's worked for me. I mean, <laughs> I, um so, you know, when it, I remember when it was about 180 bucks, I was telling a buddy of mine who's a doctor, buy some Bitcoin. And this is a guy who makes you know, a ridiculous amount of money. Sure. And um, he's like, I don't trust it, Miles. I think I'll just stick to buying real estate. I'm like, well, real estate's good too, but you really should maybe have a bit of a shot at this, you know, buy just buy like 20 of them. It's not going to be a big deal. And he's like, oh, I don't know. Well, that 20 Bitcoin would have made him multiple millions of dollars, but 
the reality is we we can't see the future. What I saw was a world of of seven billion at the time, people where only half of them were banked, and that there were cases in other countries, like in uh, in Africa, they had this thing called the M Pesa, which was a way that people could pay money to buy their food from markets using their flip phones. Okay, you know, it's like an SMS message thing. And I thought, well, if they can do that in Africa um, and it solves the big hyperinflation issues that they were seeing in places like Zimbabwe, why can't they use Bitcoin? But, you know, that they didn't, it wasn't advanced enough yet. And I think that I just sort of punted on the fact that it was advancing. And so I kept my holdings and I added to it and I, I kept the faith and I started to understand in the code how it looked and how it worked. And, and there was always this fear that at any moment the government would shut it down or the banks would shut it down. But it was like, well, you know, I really can afford to lose my investment because I didn't put that much into it. Yeah. And, and over the years, things just changed and it got bigger and, and better. And it was like this, it felt like it was a positive thing for the world. And then about 2017, 2018, when the Bitcoin price went to about 20 grand, I saw human beings exhibiting that flawed social behavior, that FOMO, fear of missing out, that greed and scams and, and all of the worst things that you see with money. It just all came to the surface. And I'm like, you know what? I'm out. So I, I took my winnings off the table and I was very happy about that, paid a big check to Uncle Sam and, you know, said, okay, well, that was a fun adventure. What's next? And then sort of sat on the sidelines for a while. And then um, I started speculating in, in Ethereum because I could see it as a what we would call back in those days, we call the world computer, uh, that it was a decentralized way that code could run across many, many networks and nodes. And I thought at the time the application for that would be um, what we would call smart contracts. So if you went and registered your vehicle with the government, yeah. it was in their database and they would tell you who the rightful title holder was, but you had no visibility of that. Maybe if you're lucky, they might put it on a web page and you can look it up. But for the most part, they own that knowledge. And I thought, no, that knowledge should be an immutable blockchain where everyone can see it. So I know that I'm the rightful owner of this real estate or this car or that this is my marriage license or this is my, I don't know, business license or whatever. These are perfect applications for this. But I realized that I was going against the, the power hungry that wanted to retain ownership of the data. So it never really played out that well and it kind of died. And then along comes this thing called NFTs. And I felt... I felt it was just another way that people were trying to use this technology to make money without actually having a viable business application for it. Having said that, I'm not sure whether the first wave of this was like that, but maybe over time it will not be because, um, so, you know, the original concept of NFTs, non-fungible tokens was right. that you, you would stake ownership to something in a blockchain and that, that ownership certificate, much like a stock certificate, was worth something of value based on perception, what somebody else is willing to pay for it. It didn't matter what you were owning. You can own a little graphic image of a monkey. Right. You know, 
And that's what people think of when they say, you know, picture value. It's not that your, your ownership of picture is what is valuable. If that picture was an Andy Warhol, well, your ownership would be worth a hell of a lot. If that picture was a Da Vinci, it'd be worth a hell of a lot. Sure. But, but we're not minting Andy Warhols and Da Vinci's, right? No. But the concept has some merit. The problem is that human beings and their perception of value is highly enthused by those that have gone gone to the moon and with Lambos and everything in the Bitcoin world. They think, I want to be like that guy. Yep. And this is my path towards that, right? Yeah. So, so that doesn't work. The surfer mentality, you can never catch a wave when it's already crested or it's upon you. And this is exactly the problem with NFTs. We've got people out there trying to surf where the wave is crashing about them and they're going to get dumped. That's just how it works. But there is something interesting about it because I know being in the music industry from a long time ago, musicians always got screwed over by the record labels. They never ever were able to claim any form of ownership of their work because there was never a means or a way in which you could track the listenership to the art, to the license holder. Okay. And that problem's never been solved. I mean, we've got that, you know, Spotify paid this amount to artists. It's pathetic what they pay to artists and they don't pay it to artists. They pay it to publishers or people who own the rights to the art. Well, if we had a way that artists could retain their own ownership of rights and we had a way that they could account for that, in an immutable public blockchain that could say, I'm going to air this piece of music. Who owns that piece of music? Oh, it's that guy. Pay him. All of a sudden, we might actually have something viable for an NFT. And I, so I see it as a, a means of uh, artistic ownership and, and shareholding like a certificate. I see value in that. I don't see value in speculating over a bunch of, you know, uh, gifts of monkeys. Right. So, so you can see the, the dichotomy here is you, you see behind the scenes of what's going on and, and understand that maybe there is something there, but it hasn't yet come forward and, and exposed itself. There's an old saying I say a lot um, in a gold rush, be the guy on the side of the river selling shovels. And that's, I think, really the secret to NFTs. That makes perfect sense. Makes a lot of sense. You know, it's like people who uh, want to open up a restaurant, the people who they're like, what is it, like only 5%, 10% of restaurants actually make it, but like the people who are actually making money are the people selling the restaurant equipment. Bingo. Oh. There you go. <laughs> right on. Makes perfect sense. So, I mean, you know, with that said, though, I mean, with the metaverse coming about now and what Mark Zuckerberg's trying to do, I mean, do you see as Ethereum and Bitcoin and NFTs going into the metaverse and like the internet having its own native currency, I guess? Well, yeah. I mean, Disney yeah. parks do it with Disney dollars, right? It's the same thing. Oh yeah. I didn't even think about that. When you're inside of that world and inside of somebody else's domain, you control the economics. So you can keep them in there by, it's like frequent flyer miles on American Airlines. American Airlines, every time you fly it, you know, they come around at the end of the flight and they, they've got the brochure up and they're like, you can have 60,000 miles if you sign <laughs> up for this card. Yeah, well, why are they doing that? Because they know that those miles only work on American Airlines. 
It keeps you in the product. That's exactly how those tokens work. Great. Um, I, didn't, I didn't even hit me, but I'm glad you said that. That's now making yeah. perfect sense to me now. Yeah, no, it, and there's this. So there is value in all of this. Um, it's just not, we're just not quite there to say how it would be exposed. And, and I think that the problem right now is that um, it might be too late because if you didn't know where this was going to go and it emerged two years ago, that was the time you should have been preparing to ride that wave, not now. Right. So I would, I would ask anybody who's looking at where the opportunities are today, where are the disasters in the world today and what do you think is going to come of that and speculate on that? Um, it's horrible. I mean, I'm not sure how timely this episode will be when it goes to air, but as horrible as the problems we see in the Ukraine right now, uh, you can make a hell of a lot of money if you are a good builder, particularly of hospitals. Yeah. Because when this dust settles and maybe peace does emerge, and it will eventually, it always does. It might take years, but it will eventually. I agree. The rich people will be the ones out there building hospitals and schools. Yeah. Like you just said earlier, learning what they have to do to get going off from that. So, yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Is this recognizing patterns and like you've been saying, recognizing trends and catching that wave? Catch the wave. I mean, like I said, it doesn't take a high school education to learn this stuff. No. Just takes life experiences. Like you said, just have your eyes open. I agree. Yeah, be, be observant and be sensitive and empathetic. Um, and if you can't, if you don't have those skills, that's what you should be learning. And the only way in my life it's always been to be observant and sensitive and empathetic is to travel, um, to, to go to places that challenge you, to see things you've never seen before, to live in places, don't speak your native language, to, uh, to understand their culture and understand the history and how they got there and to be sensitive to those things. And then all of a sudden the opportunities will emerge. I agree 100%. You know, Miles, I don't want to keep you any more than what I need to, but I got one final question for you. Mm -hmm. We talked about it earlier. What was your band's name? Oh, Shadow Society. Shadow Society. Yeah, but you probably won't find much of a record of us anymore. We came and went. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to try to check it out, man. But uh, again, Miles, thank you for being here, man. Thank you for doing this. This was a great conversation, I feel like. No, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, if, if people want to find you, find more information, if you want to give this out, you don't have to. But if they want to do that, how do they do that? Uh, I have a one-stop shopping experience for everything I do at a website called beunconstrained.com. So if they go to beunconstrained.com, I've got a podcast I do there. I've got articles. I've got courses. I've got video interviews. I've got the whole works, and they're, they can have at it. Good deal. Educate themselves, right, just by doing that. Right on. Good deal. All right, thank you again. And, folks, we're out of here. Uh, be good to yourselves. Till next time. Yeah. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.